because there's plenty of things, there's plenty of topics that need to be discussed that it's, well, one, it's hard to, it's taboo, and it's just kind of hard to bring up in everyday conversation. It's not comfortable. You have to be, like, in the right mindset Mm -hmm. to talk about some heavy things. And you have to be with the right group of people. There has to be a level of trust, I think, And respect and Mm -hmm. understanding, Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is just a good way because if you're listening to the podcast, you already know it's going to be some heavy stuff. Right. So you're already ready for it. Mm-hmm. And it's just a good way to for both the listener and the yeah. person speaking to like just share a part of what it is. And it's very relieving. I started off sharing some of my secrets and it was terrifying. <laughs> but like it was really good. And yeah. it's been really Well, I think good. there's a, a there's a level of um, clarity and a level of peace that comes when you let go of all the garbage. It's like when you're really mm-hmm. sick to your stomach, you're nauseous, you don't get sick, you just wish you could, and then finally you get sick and it's just, oh, it just so comes out. Mm-hmm. It's like, why can't I have done that, you know, an hour earlier? You, mm-hmm. it, because it's like poison. It's toxic. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it sits and it bubbles and it boils and they always say, oh, you're only as sick as your deepest secret. And I think that is a real truth. I For sure, yeah. So, um, and I think it's also very spiritual too. Christ mm-hmm. wants us to not like expose, but, but not to him, yeah. to him at least, tell him everything. Yeah. And there's definitely a level when you can share with people you love and trust. It makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. Whereas yeah. Satan wants you to, he wants you to keep it quiet. Right, because then he can get you with guilt, mm-hmm. and he can get you with even shame more important shame. Right. Even yeah. if it's not even your fault. Yeah. It's not. Exactly. It's so, I'm very much an advocate for sharing secrets. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm open to just about anything. Okay. Don't, don't ask me my weight, and we'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sounds good. We love good. you. <laughs> anything else is pretty open. So, I mean, of all the things in the world that you can tell somebody. Not that. Not that. <laughs> I would be mortified and devastated and hide my head in the sand for life. <laughs> But yeah, you're going to spill your guts on a radio program today. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, so this is Unspoken Secret, season two, first episode. Um, I'm here with Kay and Cheryl. Yeah, how do you want to introduce yourself? Um, Get right to it. Yeah, let's do. So I am um, a happy gal in <laughs> the um, second half of my life, <laughs> meaning I'm over 50. I have a wonderful family. I have five kids and 15 almost grandkids. Wow. And um, I serve at the temple in Portland, Oregon, where I live. I have callings in my church um, group, and I am a contributing member of society, which is great. I pay taxes. I have driver's license and credit cards with my own names on them. And I mention that because there was a time in my life about 15 years ago where that was not the case. Um, my driver's licenses, plural, had other people's names on them, um, and I definitely never had any credit cards with my own names on them. And when I was um, at a court one time in front of a judge, he actually called me a menace to society. <laughs> and so when I say today that I'm a contributing member of society, I'm pretty proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a big deal. So that's who I am first and foremost as a mom and then a grandma and a contributing member of society in many different ways. That's great. Yeah. Um, and how do you two know each other? <laughs> Let me do the honors. Yeah? Okay. <laughs> okay. 
So when I was 24 years old, I moved from Mission Viejo, California to Oceanside, California, and I was about six and a half months pregnant. And um, we moved, I had two girls, my husband had two boys, we got married, and I was now pregnant with our first. And uh, it was a, we were painting the house on the inside in the bedroom, and the bedroom window kind of faced the front walkway. And this one day I'm painting, and the windows are open, and this red Nissan van comes flying down the road, <laughs> screeches to a stop in front of my house. <laughs> and this lady hops out and runs to the door, and she's got this really pretty bag with, you know, tissue paper coming out of it, a gift bag. And she rings the door, and she says, I'm your new neighbor. I live down the street. We go to the same church. I saw you on Sunday. Our kids are the same age. I saw your kids in church this Sunday. We have kids the same age, and we're so excited you're here. And here's a bag of cookies. And I look out at the van, and there's like 50 billion kids hanging out and arms and legs <laughs> everywhere, and it's loud, and the thing is rocking. And all I could think of at the time was, I'm going to have a new friend. <laughs> I could totally relate to this woman, you know. And that was in 1988. And we lived across the street and down seven houses. And then throughout the course of the next several years, we served in several callings together. We served on school board committee oustings together. We <laughs> participated in PTA at the elementary schools together. We went diet coking together, which is code for de-stress time while the mm -hmm. kids sit in the back and eat their Happy Meals. We would visit anxiously, <laughs> anxiously gather diet cokes together. And then... Um, her husband and took a job, and he moved with his family, my friend. She, he took her away, and they moved up to Meridian, Idaho. And a year later, we followed and moved to Utah. And we kept in touch, and we're really good friends. And then my life um, went right down the rat hole. And she was good enough to stay my friend during that time, which I thought was really cool because a lot of people didn't. And then um, she moved back to Utah about a year before my life was... Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but about a year before I got out of prison. And um, when I got out of prison, she said, well, why don't you come live with me? And come stay with me and Jim. It'll be great. You'll love it. It'll be perfect. And you can do this and you can do this. And it was the perfect answer to a prayer. And so then after living at her house with her and her husband for a year, I was able to get on my own two feet, have a job, paid money, have my own place. And I moved seven houses down from her again, only this time we were on the same side of the street. <laughs> And so that is how I know Kate. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So she, our friendship is older than half of my children. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's amazing. It is. It's the coolest story ever, and she's the coolest friend ever. So Yeah, I've, super I've talked with her. Don't say that stuff. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> they won't see it, though. <laughs> no one will know. Okay, I can ugly cry then. <laughs> you can. You can. Yeah, no one will know what you look like. That's right, which is good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so. for sure. So we've been friends for a long time. Like I said, she has been there, and we've laughed so hard together. I mean, so hard. There's stories I could tell you there that will remain secrets. <laughs> um, we've laughed, we've cried, we've shared um, good times and bad times. And I think for me, the, um, the one thing that I, I really truly believe is I am a big believer that, you know, there's, this, there's a passage in Second Nephi in chapter 4 where he talks about angels came down and, and helped him go through his hard times and him meaning Nephi and I feel like in my life angels don't have wings and they don't fly around or flutter around and they're not always people on the other side of the veil they're people who are here or who are friends our family and I feel like um you know that is what I got in Kay and other people as well but there were people who seriously like stepped up to the plate not knowing if I was 
a danger to myself or to their children or to society or whatever. And, um, you know, those people are the people who pull people out of the hopeless pit of despair and rescue. And I think that's the one thing. Um, there's several messages at the end of this long conversation that, <laughs> that I'd like to share. But one of them is just that always I'm a true believer. You know, you hear a lot of times, oh, a leopard never changes its spots. And I say that's a bold-faced lie. <laughs> that is what Satan wants us to believe more than anything. That is what society wants you to believe. Because if we believe that people can't change, then they can't better themselves and they can't come up to that level where you think you are. And, mm -hmm. and so therefore, somebody is always going to lord over you. And, and you're always going to have this lack of peace because you're always struggling for that position, jockeying for position. And so mm -hmm. um, I'm a believer that people change, but I don't think it typically happens on their own. I think it takes yeah. a village. I was just going to say, like, with that as well, um, by claiming that no one can change, that's discrediting what the atonement does. Exactly. It's not true. Everyone can change and everyone should change. Everyone needs to change because right. we all have so many problems. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and the thing that I think about change is just because you think it looks like this, and I think it looks like this doesn't mean that there's not change that's going on in here. You know, mm -hmm. there's there's change. Change can mean many things. It doesn't necessarily mean for a person who has cancer that they become cancer free. It means maybe that they learn how to deal with that cancer or they learn how to live through it or they learn how to be graceful or patient in the midst of that. And and I think that, um, you know, that's that's one of those things that the atonement covers, but it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. cover change in the way that we make a finite limitation on it mm -hmm. always so yeah so you want the story story now Sh sure yeah <laughs> let's get into it okay i'm ready i'm anxious all right so um i had a pretty good life growing up i was um, a little bit spoiled as a child i was one of two children i was the oldest and the smartest for sure the best <laughs> looking <laughs> sorry steve um and i we lived all over about every two years we would move um when i was a kid because my dad was in the navy and so I felt like one of my um, strong points was I was able to make friends very easily. Always had been very social, felt like I fit in the crowd. And when we were 13, which is a really hard time for any TJ, teenager, mm -hmm. uh, my dad said, we're going to move from Orange County, Florida to Orange County, California. And I thought, I don't want to go. And so I kind of threw a fit and was kind of a jerk as a 13-year-old, um, but pretty harmless about it. And we moved to California, and my life as I knew it as a happy person came to a screeching halt. <laughs> because when we moved there in Mission Viejo, it's a very um, well-to-do neighborhood, and everybody drove Mercedes and Beamers, and we drove up like the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> <laughs> with uh, a big old Silverado pickup truck and, and an AMC Hornet. <laughs> You're not old enough to know what one of those are, but they're not pretty. <laughs> kind of like the Pinto at oh. its time. Yeah. So, and, and we didn't, we wore tough skins as jeans, which were a Sears brand um, that only the poor people got to wear. And not that my parents were poor, they were just very conscientious about money. Mm -hmm. But I don't even think I'd ever heard of Ditto's or um, Jordache or... Neither is he. I know, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> but some of these name brands, you know, we just never heard of them. And so I felt very not part of. And so I did you know, get in where you can fit in kind of a thing. And I started, as I started high school, I hung around with all the wrong people, um, drank a lot, smoked a little bit of weed, but never really liked that, and um, ended up uh, 
having a baby um, the year that I graduated, which was two years early, so I was 16 when that happened. And, and I struggled with that because when I was about seven months pregnant with that daughter, I'd obviously not been going to church. We would ditch church, go down and buy cigarettes from the Winchell's donut shop about three blocks away and smoke during Sunday school. But um, anyways, when I got pregnant, I quit all that. And when I would go to church, I never felt comfortable. But my mom kept saying, just come, just come. And so at about seven months pregnant, I walked into the foyer one day and the gal who would have been my my maid slash Laurel advisor was standing talking to my mom's best friend. And I decided before I walked in the chapel, I better walk down the hall and use the bathroom first. So I walked down the hall and I got about as far as the kitchen, which was maybe about 20 feet, 30 feet away. And the gal who should have been my young woman's advisor mm -hmm. said to my mother's best friend, I can't believe she has the nerve to show her face in here. Now mind you, this was in the early 80s, so oh, things were very no. different then. And I remember thinking, well, not going to church here again, you know, yeah. and I just kept walking, went right smack out the back door and, and did not return for several years. And um, I used that as an excuse. Like today I look at it and go, well, that was stupid. You let somebody else control your life. But hindsight, you know, as an older person is great. <laughs> as, a younger, <laughs> as a younger person, you don't ever see that. No. And so I now am 16 with a baby and I go to school and I do the things I need to do to get a nursing degree and get an x-ray license and do the things that I love. And I was loving life pretty much until I got married at 18. Um, to a neighbor to pretty much just get out of my mom's house because I felt like I was being stifled again. Um, not the wisest choice I've made. Uh, I get pregnant again, have another baby. <laughs> and one day when I was pregnant with her, um, he came home drunk and I called him on some things and um, it, it wasn't pretty and I got beat up and I thought, well, I don't need that. So I called my mom and you know, my mom has always, another big angel in my life, right, always rescued me, which is both good and bad, to be <laughs> rescued. And um, I went back to live with her, and then about a year and a half later, I went through the repentance process with my bishop for the first time in, at 19. And my very best friend in our ward said, oh, you've got to meet my brother. You're just going to love him. He's got two little boys. You've got two little girls. You're like a match made in heaven. <laughs> you know, so I met her brother, and we had a great time, and we dated for like a, a whopping three months, and no, we weren't at BYU. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you got engaged in that, in that short. <laughs> yeah, and got married within six weeks after really? engagement. <laughs> yes, it was perfect. And so then he had two little boys and I had two little girls. And now you've heard the story of how we get to K. But my life was pretty put together, I thought. And I thought I would never leave the church again. And I had very strong conviction and served in a lot of callings where I felt like I did a lot of good. And, and I thought I had a solid testimony. So imagine my surprise <laughs> <laughs> when we decide to move to Zion because... The life in Oceanside was a little scary at the time. We At the junior high, there were kids who were getting their earlobes cut off, extorted for lunch money. There was gangs like crazy. And it was just not a place where we felt comfortable raising our kids. And so we decided to, like I said, move to Zion. So we did. And we moved to American Fork because really that's as Zion-like as you can get next <laughs> to Provo. And um, life just fell to pieces. It was an awful thing. I had no friends. I didn't feel like people talked to me. I didn't feel included. And it was like almost going back in time to when I moved to California. That mm -hmm. same feeling of not fitting in, that same feeling of not having friends. And the people that I became friends with were people at work. Um, my marriage at the time was 
um, not very happy. There was a lot of stress in our life over money and a lot of kids. We had added three of ours to the two of his and two of mine. So we now have seven kids in the house under the age of 12. Um, and I'm not wow. even 30 yet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it was exciting times <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and so um, I went back to, I, I, I'm assuming this is, I'm trying to read in my own mind, right? And psychology on it, and I'm not a psychologist, but I, I went back to what I knew would fix that, and that was drinking. And I would go, um, I would go out, I'll, I'll leave the gory details of the one big event, uh, kind of vague, but I had gone out, I was drinking, my husband at the time did not know where I was at, he was worried and concerned. That escalated into something horrible. Um, I ended up having to leave the home, uh, and that was pretty much the beginning of the end of our marriage. Mm -hmm. And so then I used that as now I've got another reason, right? First of all, those Mormon people didn't like me when I was 16. <laughs> and then I got all goody-goody and did all the right things and put the check marks in the right places and my life fell to pieces and my marriage isn't what it's supposed to be. And, you know, because I'm not living this way, now my ex-husband's going to get my kid. I, I mean, I made all this stuff up. Some of it was true and some of it was not true and some of it was exaggerated in my head. And anyways, I had all these really great reasons for why it was okay to go drink. Mm -hmm. And um, for me, I'm an alcoholic. I found that out. <laughs> That's not a good thing to find out. You probably should know that about yourself at some point. <laughs> or if you know that you have tendencies in your family that run through your DNA, you probably just should not ever pick up because it's literally playing Russian roulette. Yeah. So what I also discovered is, at least in Utah, and I've also tested this theory in California, and it turns out it's true there too, but <laughs> if you drink, you will know people who do drugs 90% of the time. And I'm not talking about having a glass of wine with your dinner at, you know, La Chateau, whatever. I'm talking about, you know, when you go into a bar. And if you don't, it doesn't mean you're necessarily going to use, but if you know people who drink, you probably know people who drug. And I've found that to be very true. So I was working at a bar because I figured that'd be a great way to make money. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I had a regular job, a real job. And... Um, I worked at this bar and this girl said to me one day, I was telling her how tired I was and I had this big project to do and no, I couldn't party after we closed the bar down because I was super tired. And she goes, well, I've got this stuff. You can, you can use this and if you use this, you know, you won't be tired. And I thought, oh, that's speed. Everybody knows what a yellow jacket or crosstop is from, you know, my day. And um, it wasn't. <laughs> it was crank or cracker, not crack, sorry. It was crank or meth. And um, I never did understand the difference between the two. She called it crank. I've always called it meth, but so it just started with this little teeny tiny line, <clears throat> little itty bitty bit, and man, was I efficient. I was up for three days, grinding my teeth, which was stinky, but um, it was it was phenomenal. It was this I was able to focus. I felt like, and I actually probably did at the beginning. Um, I was able to get a ton of work done. My projects got completed. Everything was timely. Instead of being like a squirrel like I am now and <laughs> since then, I actually could focus on things. And I thought, this is really awesome. And so I would use and use and use. Well, that first time was in February of 1998. No, sorry. Yeah, that was February of 1998. By May of 1998, I was on Utah's Most Wanted because, not because of meth specifically, like I wasn't in a meth lab cooking because I knew me personally I would blow something up and that would not be good but what I was really good at was presenting myself and so I committed a lot of um, money crimes and by a lot I'm talking to the tune of like about $80,000 wow. 
you know, and that's just the ones that we knew about. And so, um, in addition to that, I mean, there was drugs, lots of drugs going on, and it got to the point where it didn't matter what it was, as long as, you know, what they said, what's your favorite drug? What, what do you have? You know, and it, I never was big into, like, um, the pills or heroin because they made me puke, and I want to party. I don't want to sleep and puke, so... But I got a very good, bad, I don't know what to call that, a very strong addiction in a very quick way. And so it took exactly three months from first use to going to Utah's Most Wanted for writing bad checks, stealing identities, forgery, fraud, et cetera, et cetera. And so that was in 1998. By the year 2002, yeah, April of 2002, or was it 2001? I think it was 2002. It's kind of a dream now, <laughs> um, and not a good dream, like more like a nightmare. But um, in April, April 3rd, I had been on several sprees. I'd been in and out of jail several times. I had been in enough trouble for five people. And um, at this particular time, I was in a stolen RV. I was ready to, <laughs> it's not funny. <laughs> okay, it is kind of funny. <laughs> it was really pretty. <laughs> um, but I was in a stolen RV that I had purchased from the drug dealer who was cooking meth in it previously. Um, and I was going to go to, my plan was, because this is logical, is I was going to go to Mexico and I was going to dunk my toes in the sand and be a bartender for the rest of the fraternity and walk away from my, walk away from my family, walk away from my friends, walk away from everybody and everything I ever knew because nothing mattered except for getting high. And so I was up in Colville at the time and I had had several run-ins. <laughs> with the Spanish Fork um, and the Orb Police. And the beautiful thing was about that, that one of the policemen that had arrested me on several occasions, who at the time was working for the Orem Police Drug Enforcement, whatever they call it, agent, not the agency, but the task force, um, he actually, we were talking one day as I was being handcuffed and put into the car. Who talks? I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I just think that was odd. To me, I see all these little miracles and things, right? It's odd, but she's always been able to talk to anybody. So. <laughs> <laughs> the walls, everybody. But um, this particular officer said to me something about the church, and I said, I wish people would stop preaching to me all the time. And he said, well, you know it's true. And I said, I don't know that. And I said, it doesn't matter about religion. It doesn't matter at all what religion you profess to be a part of. As long as you worship God, you know, get in the pool. It doesn't matter how you get in the pool. And he said, you know, that's not true. And I remember thinking, no, that is kind of true. But in my heart, I think I probably, he was right, I knew. But I was never going to admit that. And so as we talked, I said something to him, and, and he mentioned that he had served a mission. And I don't know how it came up, but I said, oh, where did you serve? And he said, oh, I was in the Anaheim, California mission. I said, oh, that's the mission my mom and dad are in. He goes, oh, really? He says, yeah, I served most of my time in Mission Viejo. And I said, my mom and dad live in Mission Viejo. <laughs> and he said, oh. He said, yeah. He says, we lived with members at the time. And I said, my mom and dad had members or missionaries living at their house. <laughs> And he goes, he looked at oh, me and no. I looked at him and we're just doing this stare down and like, this can't be happening, right? As he's arresting you. Yeah, as he's, <laughs> as I'm, I'm in the back of the car now, seated with my oh, hands. I see. Yeah, I'm not shackled feet, but I'm shackled, you know, my hands are behind my back. And and he said, um, he said, yeah, I lived with, and at the time my last name was not that, so he would never put two and two together. And I said, that's my mom and dad. <laughs> so my arresting officer. <laughs> 
shout out to Ryan, I won't say your last name, um, <laughs> but my arresting officer actually had been a full-time missionary living with my parents. Okay, what's the odds of that happening? That's crazy. <laughs> okay, that's not going to happen every day. So I'm thinking to myself, well, that's really weird. <laughs> so I get to jail, and, and that was just one experience. Another experience was one time I went to jail, and I was supposed to be there for a year, and they let me out because my paperwork wasn't there. How does that happen? I don't know, <laughs> right? <laughs> Have you ever had that happen? No. Like you, you've never <laughs> arrested either. That was a, but I mean, just weird stuff. I don't want to say weird because it was all these blessings. I, I think I'm a big church believer, so I, I, I believe Heavenly Father works miracles in our life on a regular basis. And if we just wake up and show up and look for them, they'll be there. But I could not believe all these things that happened as I looked back. I never saw it when I was in the middle of it. But anyway, so now, again, we're April 3rd of 2002, and, and I'm in Colville, and these cops show up, one of which is Ryan, and another one was a guy named Steve. I'll leave his last name um, also unsaid. But they were my two favorites to hate and to love at the same time, right? <laughs> I loved them because they were always kind as they could be, being arresting officers, <laughs> but always very firm and always would be in my face about church and God and my parents and my belief system and what are you thinking? You're smarter than this. And, and I had a big drug problem by this time. And I'm not talking about a little drug problem. I'm talking about if if I could use it, it didn't matter where or how or when. I just wanted to be high. And the problem with drugs is after a certain point, you can't get enough to be high anymore. You just can't. There's not enough. There just isn't enough. And so for me, um, this particular day, the night or the Saturday, the Sunday before that was Easter Sunday. It was March 31st. And um, I was running with this guy and his girlfriend that were with me writing checks together. And um, she had been down in Spanish Fork. She had gotten arrested. She called him from jail. And I said, well, don't bring her back here because she's going to she'll knock us out you know and he said oh no she'd never do that and I said no she'll do that and so that's exactly what she did so on Wednesday morning Tuesday morning whenever it was the first the second the third it was Wednesday morning um, the third of April is when the cops showed up but what I think was interesting about that was on that Easter evening she'd gone down to see her kids and got arrested he was gone doing whatever he was doing wherever he was doing it and I was by myself, and I remember I just had had enough. I could not put enough drugs in my system to get high. I was mad about that. There was alcohol out the kazoo in the, in the stolen RV. There were drugs. There were pills. There was heroin. There was meth. There was cocaine. It was a plethora of substances that should have been able to do the job, and they couldn't. I couldn't get them to do the job. And I remember being angry, and I remember being hurt, and I remember thinking I would like to go visit my kids for Easter, but I knew my ex-husband would turn me in in a quick heartbeat, which was great. I'm glad I knew that. But at the time, it didn't matter, and I was just angry about it. And so he um, he ended up... Uh, not Sorry, he didn't end up. I ended up getting down, not really on my knees, but just kind of hollering at, at Heavenly Father. I would call it today a prayer, but... I, w I mean, I wouldn't call it today a prayer, but then I called it a prayer, and I just was shouting, and I, I said, I don't know how to stop this. I don't know how to quit. I don't know what to do. I don't want to live this life anymore, but i got to get out of town. I've got to be done. It, help me. And, you know, it, you're the one who put me in this position. <laughs> I remember saying that because it's really God's fault, right? He helped me down <laughs> made me snort drugs. So, um, and I was angry. I mean, I was super, super, really, really angry, and 
And the problem was, is that instead of directing it where the anger belonged and could have been fixed at myself, I directed it at everybody and everybody else, everybody, everything and everybody else. And, and I remember just being exhausted and kind of just sitting there, just sobbing my brains out, which I didn't do too often when I was um, in those days. Now I do it all the time. But um, that next morning was, or not, sorry, not that next morning, on the April 3rd is when the cops came. And I remember thinking at the time, I, and I'm sitting at the, at the driver's seat of this RV, and there's this big, like they have a console that's there, and there's a TV that's been put in there. And that's where we play Mega Tetris and um, what's that fighting one where you have to, I can't do it. Anyways, some virtual fighter thing game. Nobody remembers them now, sure. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, they wouldn't even remember the names of them. But there was, we'd sit and we'd play these video games, and we were getting ready to go do our last bank run before we left and dropped off Rick and Crystal in Colorado where they wanted to be dropped off and then I was going to head off to Mexico and boom 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 on the door and here's the cops and I'm like oh. and I remember thinking I said I wanted to stop but I didn't say I wanted to go to jail you know? <laughs> so you have to be really careful in my experience what you ask your Heavenly Father for because when you ask for help he'll he'll send help <laughs> I just didn't think that my guys were going to come with you know star badges on and so yeah. Um, but they did, and they, again, another set of angels for me. Um, as much as I begged them, they wouldn't let me smoke one last cigarette <laughs> before they took me to jail. <laughs> um, but they, I had those same conversations again with these guys, which was, why are you doing this? Is, can this finally be enough? Can you just get done with this? Can you, you know, and I just remember being so resistant to that, and yet at the same time, having these thoughts in my mind, like I said of, I didn't ask for this, I asked for help to quit. I, I didn't want to go to jail because I knew now that there was no getting out of jail. There was absolutely no, before I'd have been able to bail out and come back and I'd missed court and this time I knew it was too much. So by the time they take me to Utah County Jail, which is another miracle because I was arrested in Colville, why didn't I go to Summit County Jail? I'll tell you why. <laughs> because in Utah County Jail they had an on-unit treatment program which they called the OUT program that was run by Val Ellison who has since passed away, but he, man, that guy was amazing. He was um, the author of a drug treatment program that he used for several years that was very successful in the Utah County Jail, and I believe truly that that's why I got to go to that jail instead of being arrested and taken to Colville. And so um, here I am, a major drug addict, like major drug addict, and I have to go to court. I've got a total of 54 felony charges now. Um, there, I think there were 11. To this day, I think there's 11 that are second degree felonies and I don't know how many that are third degree felonies and misdemeanors. But um, there's, you know, when I had to print my rap sheet up <laughs> one time, it's huge. It's longer than I am tall by like four times. It's just this long, ugly thing and it's, it's awful. And um, that particular, time I did not get out of jail again you know so I was there and I you're not supposed to start that out program again until um, you've been sentenced but they let me go and I did not only did I not to get to do or get to do it for six weeks I got to do it for three months nobody ever does that like I don't know why I always say that and I've said that since then why me why me and I've never been able to answer that other than why not me you know why not me and so um, I spent a year in jail and then went to court one day and they um, said, well, there's no warrants holding you here and you don't have bail, so you have to leave the jail until you're sentenced. And I said, what? <laughs> and so because the charges, I was, when I was arrested, there was a charge 
a, a one year, I had received a one year sentence and they started that one year sentence. But because I had a one year sentence, they figured all my court stuff would be wrapped up by then. So they never put bail attached to any of my new charges. So after this year, they let me out. They just let me go. And I had to go down and find a place to live. And, and that worked out really well. I was able to live with a gal named Julie in Provo, who was very active in the um, Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous program. And um, I'd been going to church at the jail. And I walk into the church building, which is her ward, one Sunday morning. And I'm not kidding you. I sit down, and in walks the bishopric and the high council speaker, and the high council speaker is the prosecuting attorney. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this really cannot be happening. No. <laughs> this cannot be happening. So he looks at me and I look at him, because he's probably trying to figure out, why is this girl out of jail? <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out, did he see me and does he know me? <laughs> is it time for me to go? And so, anyways, the long and short was I ended up... Um, having to go to the court. They took care of the paperwork. I go back into the jail and was sentenced like a couple weeks later and um, ended up spending four years in the prison where I had a ton of a ton of time to do. And um, I, I don't know how much to go into because I don't know what kind of time frame we're on. But I, I just, for me, whenever I would hear people talk about prison, you know, they talk about being a hard number and how that, that con the ex-con thing will follow you for the rest of your life and you will come out a different person and you'll be jaded and you'll be hard and you'll be a you know a lifetime criminal and your life will change and and you'll never be the same and they kind of were right my life did change and it has never been the same but it was not because I came out jaded or hard it was because Heavenly Father used that time to soften my heart and to make me realize how blessed my life was and so I got four years of intense Cheryl, Jesus Christ, Heavenly Father time, like one-on-one -on -one time where I got to do nothing but whatever I wanted to do. I mean, I did have to have a job, which I did get paid a whopping 40 cents an hour to do, too. <laughs> and so... But you had to pay half of it. I did pay half of it to uh, child support. Mm. And um, <laughs> I had saved up tithing money, which I always think is funny because they would never let me pay it in prison anyways. But um, I had a job, and other than that, I, I kind of got to decide what to do with my time. And my vision of prison was, I'll go to school and I'll get my four-year degree. No, that wasn't the case. They didn't have programs like that for women. For men, they did, but not for women. And so it was just pretty much, um, you know, you either sit around and read, or you get involved in all the gang crap, or you get involved in the drug trade that goes on within the prison, or you decide to do something different. And I thought, I need to do something different. I don't want to be this person anymore. And you have to tell me about your dad. Tell me. <laughs> okay. So right before I got arrested, the, the time in April, um, my dad had had open heart surgery. They had a, I can't remember the name of the tumor, but it's a grape-like cluster tumor that sits in the heart, and it's like one out of every two million people get it. And my mom can't drive, and she was scared and nervous, and I'm in the medical field, so she likes me to come. And so I went to California, and he went to L.A. to have the surgery done, and it now they probably wouldn't have to, but then they still had to crack the chest open. It was kind of a big deal surgery. And after he had his surgery, I was staying to take care of him and drive him around and stuff. And he'd say, Cheryl, will you just, <laughs> you make me cry. He'd go, Cheryl, will you just read the Book of Mormon one more time? And I'm like, Dad, I don't want to read the Book of Mormon. And he'd go, Cheryl, just read the Book of Mormon one more time. And I'd say, Dad, I don't, I don't want to. I mean, it's a great book, but he goes, just, just read it. Okay, Dad. You know, so I read it. And he goes, well, how did it, how did you feel? 
And I'm like, it's a great story, and it's a really good place for people to go when they want religion, you know. But I was not, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't feel anything, you know. But I didn't feel anything much about anything at the time. So when I got arrested that first time, and, and was in the, not the first time, sorry, the last time, and was in the jail waiting for all this stuff that first year part, they have a, at the Utah County Jail, they have a bottom tier and they have the stairs that go up and then there's a top tier and I've never all the times I've been and I'd been a few times I'd never not had a roommate this particular time I didn't have a roommate and as I was coming down the stairs for meals one day they have this big tall bookshelf and guess what's on it like five billion Book of Mormons right because <laughs> the church volunteers come in and they give you a Book of Mormon if you want one and nobody ever takes them out of there and every time I would walk past that bookcase I would hear my dad say come on Cheryl just read the Book of Mormon and I'm like, I'm not going to read the Book of Mormon one more time. And I would walk past that staircase or walk past that bookcase and get kind of mad. And finally, I decided, okay, I've heard enough of him in my head after so many days of walking up and down the stairs three times a day. And one time I picked up that book <laughs> and I took it to my room. And again, angry prayer, right? Okay, Heavenly Father, if you're really there and this is really the answer and you're supposed to be helping me and if you're really the God you say you are, you better have a really good reason for me and why this is happening and blah, 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 blah. So I open my scriptures up, and it's Alma 32, 12, and 13, and it talks about being compelled to be humble. And it says if you're compelled to be humble, that's great, but imagine how much greater your life could be if you become humble on your own. And it talks about how, you know, people were thrown out of their synagogues is what the words are that they use in, in Alma. And in my head, it was you've been thrown out of your community because you're hard-hearted and you lack faith and you need to learn wisdom and you need to learn humility. And I remember just getting, like, like, blown over by that one and that was kind of that was the beginning of like when I talk about being hard-hearted um, I always picture it like in a coconut shell your heart's kind of in a coconut shell and I think that was the first time it cracked you know it was the first time I actually felt something and I thought I know and there's no way I can deny that that feeling that I'm feeling right now is that cracking it's that humility it's that okay you got my attention <laughs> which why it took so long, I'll never know, you know? Well, I do know, because I'm hard-headed. But um, it, it was just one experience like that after another. And, and when I got to the prison and decided that I was ready to change and ready to do those things, it, it just, even in the jail, there were so many miracles. I could tell you so many things about little things that just not having any money, you know, and yet my mom finally decides to send birthday money, which was the exact amount it cost to get a little transistor radio, and I could listen to the BYU channel on 89.1, you know, and I could listen to things, talks, and I could listen to good music and, and listen to that, or the time that my, the time that my friends, there's seven of her, right? She's the best um, friend for the longest, but she's not the best of the bunch. <laughs> so, but she um, and these other seven ladies got together. They were up in Washington in another friend's house, and they held up a ladder sideways, so it looked like they were looking through bars. <laughs> and sent sent this picture. They put it in a little thing that looked kind of like a jail. It was a schoolhouse, but all seven of them are holding onto these ladder rungs, so it looks like the bars. And they said it was something like, "We're with you," or "We're thinking of you," or "We'd be there with you if we could," or I don't know something, you know. And I remember when I got that in the mail, I was showing the girls that I was in this room with at the time. There were six of, no, twelve of us in that room, and I said, "Look, you guys, these are my friends," and they like, "You don't know how lucky you are." And I'm like, "I know. I, seriously, I know." And so. Um, 
you know, it was stuff like that all the time. It was in the prison, you know, I would, I'd, I got to work more than one job. I got to work three jobs. I got to tutor people on how to read. I got to work in the library. Okay, best job ever. And I got to pass out supplies on a Saturday morning. Not as much fun, but it was money, you know. <laughs> I got to go to so many activities. I got to spend time up at Heber County Jail where every day I would take the trash outside, which doesn't sound like a big deal until you haven't seen the sky or you haven't smelled the fresh air for months, you know, because the prison you just don't get that as often because the girls go out there and ruin it by signing to the guys, so you never get to go outside. But at Heber, you could go outside at, at almost every day, not... Not so much that the whole jail got to go out, but because I, of the job I had in the kitchen and because for some reason people trusted me, I got to walk the trash outside every day. I was never so happy to take the trash out in my life, you know? My kids, my relationship with my kids, my kids were young when this happened. They were in their early teens and younger when this happened. And, um, you know, they were able to come. Kay was able to bring them up. They were able to come up and visit. We had a blast with them. My kids since then have forgiven me. I think, as best as they can. I mean, we party like they have. Of course they have. <laughs> You know, the funny part was is it's now become kind of the standing family joke. When Renee was at senior prom, her prom date um, came over, and he, I said, you know what the rules are, right? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I have her home by midnight. And I go, no, that's her dad's rules. I go, I have different rules. And he goes, oh, really? I said, yeah. And he, he says, okay, what's that? And I go, well, these are her shoulders, and these are her knees. So if she has problems with her shoes on or off and you want to help her, I'm cool. Not above the knees, though, right? I said, but here you want to put your hand on her and dance, that's great, but nothing below the shoulders. You know, below the knees, below the shoulders, you're good. Or, you know, above mm -hmm. the shoulders. And he's like, okay. And I go, look, dude, I'm serious. And he's like, yeah, yeah, ha, 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 you know, laughing. I go, look, I've been to prison, and I am so not afraid to go back. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, ha, ha, and my daughter goes, no, really. She She's has. serious. <laughs> She has. <laughs> and so now, like, my younger daughter will say, you know, she struggles for money because she's a young person with newlywed with a kid. And she'll say, Mom, don't you want to just write one more check? Just one more. Come on, one more time to the bank, Mom. <laughs> you know? So it's become a joke. Even at my last job that I had here, one of the CEOs, uh, or sorry, the vice, the president of the company was sitting in a meeting. We had this manager's meetings once a week. And, and that's a whole other story in a second. But these guys... I had told them the truth because I feel like that's important. And um, we were in a meeting and they were talking about how we could get more revenue and how we could do this, that, and the other. And, and the president at the time, he he's kind of not a funny guy. And he just, he lifted his head slightly and he goes, or we could just have Cheryl write a check. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it's become kind of this laughing thing because, because the pain isn't associated with it anymore. Yeah. So one of the lessons that I've learned is that you cannot be hateful and grateful at the same time. You just can't. And so if you can find a reason to be grateful for the pain that you're having, it doesn't be, it's not painful anymore. It doesn't affect you. And so like today I look at it and I, I'm so, I wish I could have done what I did without hurting people. And then I would be so grateful for all of this experience. I still am so grateful for them. You know, the time at the prison, um, was hard. <laughs> it was hard. It was ugly. I've seen things that I can't erase or burn out of my brain ever. Um, I never did see a fight only because I am so anti-violent that I would come sliding in between two girls who are about to deck it and start telling jokes, you know, so that there wouldn't be um, punches thrown. But there's so much cruelty and there's so much sadness there. I, I, I met women who 
from the time they were six, seven, eight years old were drinking and drugging with their parents. And as a girl would come in, sometimes they'd be like, oh, hi, Grandma, hi, Mom, you know, because their mom and their grandma were in there at the same time. And, and people who don't have support systems, who don't know how to stop that life, you know, and I, I had one girl that was my drug dealer for a long time who was in there, and I said, are you going to ever stop? Because she'd be in and out all the time. I said, are you going to ever stop? And she said, no. She goes, I don't want to stop. I said, well, what do you mean you don't want to stop? I said, aren't you sick of coming to jail? And she goes, yeah, but it's just a job hazard. She says, I just know what's going to happen. And she said, but I'm not going to go out and flip burgers for eight bucks an hour when I can make five, six, eight hundred dollars in a day. And how do you argue that? I mean, how do you argue that? You can't really, other than the quality of life isn't so good inside the jail. <laughs> but, um, you know, so there were a lot of lessons that were learned there. But uh, the, the secret part is, is I don't really tell this story to everybody, right? Because there's a stigma attached with, as you can imagine, I mean, I don't think I look like a criminal. I mean, you, you can tell me. <laughs> I, I don't think so, no. <laughs> I mean, don't I look like somebody's grandma? Yeah. I mean, I do. <laughs> Wait, you said that way too fast. <laughs> you meant somebody's mom, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Sister. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. No, but I just, I feel like the thing that was the blessing for me was the time alone to spend with my Heavenly Father, but also it was the time to kind of get comfortable with myself and realize that sometimes you just can't bake away the pain. You just can't. Sometimes you just have to go right through the middle of it. You have to wallow in it. You have to feel it. I felt feelings in that prison that I've never felt since then, and I hope that I will never have to feel again or that I have people that I love and know will never have to feel again. And for such a long time afterward, I served in the um, 12-step program, whether it was AA or whether it was in the church's program, because I felt like I had something to give back. Today, I don't do that anymore, and I kind of miss that. Um, I don't miss having to talk about it in front of people who don't understand because I have had experiences. Um, I'm single, <laughs> so dating is really interesting <laughs> when you get to the point <laughs> where that story needs to come up. I remember one time this guy, <laughs> we were sitting at Olive Garden up in West Valley, and he said, yeah, you know, so things are moving along really good, blah, blah, blah. And all we'd ever talked about with divorce before was I said, well, you know, there, I definitely had some fault. And my ex-husband was somewhat at fault, too. And, you know, things happen and blah, blah, blah. Well, he said something about, I want to tell you the rest of my story. I said, okay, that's great. And I said, well, remember how that one time I told you that the divorce was mostly my fault? But he goes, yeah, and I said, well, I, I think I should, I'm at a point now where I should share with you the rest of the story. So I tell him a really many version of what we've just talked about, you know, made a lot of mistakes, ended up with drug and alcohol problem and in prison for four years. And he'd been holding my hands across the table, right? <laughs> and he kind of lets go. And he sits there for a minute. He goes, excuse me. He goes, would you excuse me for just a minute? And I said, oh, of course, you know. So he gets up and he walks away and I'm sitting there waiting for him to come back from what I assume is the bathroom or a phone call or a, I need a breather. I can't think about this right now. I don't know. And he never comes back. And so finally the waitress comes over. She goes, honey, I think your date just left. I go, yeah, I kind of figured that. And I didn't even pay the bill, which I thought was kind of rude. But mm. it's it, it's interesting because I've, I've watched people physically shut down as you tell them your story. They, they don't want to associate with a drug addict because a drug addict is awful. And I never lived in a cardboard box under the freeway. I'm just, you know, never. Never did I have to do that. I know there are drug addicts who do. I also know there's drug addicts who also live in, you know, multi-million dollar mansions. It doesn't matter. But we tend to, as a society, I think, put people in a, a box and it says, if you're a drug addict, you look like this. Or if you're an alcoholic, you look like this. Or if you're an ex-con, you look like this. And so I've always been a little bit reluctant to share with people. 
And then it kind of got out where I shared with a lot of people. And I found out sometimes that it would come back and bite me in the butt, you know? So since I've moved to Portland, I haven't, I've shared this with just two people, two women, through all three women, I guess. Yeah, three women. And that was kind of a special circumstance and, and an interesting thing. But I don't feel like um, it's necessarily because I'm trying to hide it anymore, but it seems like it is. Like, I just don't want to put myself out there for that pain anymore. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, it feels so good to talk about it because it really was a huge blessing. Like, I would not take, I would not erase those four years, well, eight if you count all the time I used before that, but I would not erase those eight years from my life. I just wouldn't. And I feel like, you know, before I was a pretty judgmental person, like super judgmental. Like, you drink? Well, you know, and, and I would never do that today. I don't care if you're purple with green polka dots. I don't care what your deal is, what you're hooked on. I don't care who you're hooked on. I don't care how you live your life. You know, my only thing is I'll be nice to you. You be nice to me. Let's just treat each other with some kind of common respect. And if we can't do that, then let's not be in the same room together, (laughs) you know, and that's about all I ask anymore. And I think that, I think that's how Jesus wants us to do it, you know, and here in Utah, I'm not knocking you, Utah, because you know, I love you. But here in Utah, we tend to be a lot more judgy than that. And I think we tend to look at people and we say, we say things like, oh, well, she's a criminal. I can't date her. Or, oh, she's a criminal. I don't want my kids hanging out with her. Or, you know, just different things like this that, that what about the benefits that come from that? What about the fact that I probably know your kid's on drugs long before you know your kid's on drugs? <laughs> that's a benefit. You know the signs. <laughs> I do know the signs. <laughs> you know? That's a benefit. That is a benefit. That is. You know You're I mean? very aware of what's going on. <laughs> Super. <laughs> yeah. And so I just feel like there's so many benefits that can come from that. I know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of unfair and fair discrimination. Right? Like, I... When I first started the job, when I got out of jail, Kay said to me, yeah, if you come live at my place, there's a squirrel who just got arrested. She has to serve some time in jail. But you could have her job while she's in jail, and that will give you time to find a real job. Well, that pretend job actually worked into a really great job, but I told them everything, and they trusted me. They trusted me with a company credit card, knowing what I'd done with other people's money. You know, they trusted it. And for a long time, it was an American Express with no limit on it. You know, but because of the things that I'd done, I was so overly critical of my own use of that card or my own appearances to other people. I wouldn't go into somebody's house alone, even if they said, hey, I left the keys under the doormat, go in and get what you need. I would never do that because what happens if a neighbor sees me and calls the cops and then I have to explain that to the cops, Hmm. you know? And so there's so many things that have come from that. I know know what it feels like when people um, are not nice to you or not nice to your children we've had that happen because they know who you are you know or they assume when I had a a child who was um, dating a person and and uh, that other person's uh, parents said something to the effect of well you know uh, it's not too far-fetched to think that this child could have those mother's traits and be an alcoholic and drug addict and and you can end up in this marriage and a divorce and I thought yeah, I understand what she's saying, but she didn't say that the right way, right? Just because somebody in your family does something doesn't mean you're going to make the same choices. That's agency, right? And so to judge my child based on my actions seemed a little bit harsh to me as a mother. <laughs> but I, I think that there's so many lessons that can be learned from this, and, and certainly there were so many miracles that came in. And for me to, 
to tell the story and to do it justice, I can never not talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just can't leave that out of the story because that was, for me, the only thing that really matters. I mean, that's what I learned from it. I, I learned that there's the culture of the church and there's the doctrine of the church and then there's the people of the church. And sometimes they all blend together nicely and sometimes they are three completely independent Never should touch, never should talk silos, <laughs> right? I agree. You know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, and that's the thing is, I think we have to be, as a society in general, and as a church specifically, if we're going to profess that we love our Savior, he, you know, do you know where the, Christ came to the prisons? I mean, he says, if you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me, and I believe that. And so all these people that came in and were my, you know, angels, all those people were being Christ-like and doing what they did for me for him. And so how can we, how can we possibly sit in judgment of other people's actions when we don't know where they've been, we don't know what they've been through, and we try to make these assessments of people. And, and, and to tell somebody, I had it when I was the last four months I was in prison, they actually let me out of prison and into a halfway house as the cook, which was hysterical um, because I didn't qualify for that at all. You're not supposed to have more than two felonies and you can't have second degree felonies. Well, I have 11 second degree felonies. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it should have happened. But um, when I was there, the they have a PO that's over you. And this PO, I don't know how many times, we have a weekly meeting with them. And how many times he would say, you'll never get out from underneath this mountain of debt. Because it was about 80 grand by the time all the, everything was done. And he said, you'll never be able to pay that off. You will never have a job that will make any money. You will be flipping burgers or you'll be working construction, you know, if you're lucky. You, but you will never get out from underneath this. And every time he would say that, I'd get so, ooh, I'd just be so angry. And, and it would tick me off because I thought, how can you know what my life is going to be like? And now I look at what I make in a year. And I'm not going to brag, but I'm going to brag. I'm not going to tell you numbers. But I'm just going to say that I know that the average PO pay here is probably about one and a half times less than what I make in a year. And so you can't tell me that people don't change and that people don't give second chances and that, that things, good things can't come out of bad things because I'm living proof that that's not the case. you know. And so the other message that I have is besides the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope of the atonement is also that people do change. We change we can change and change can be permanent you know do i know what's going to happen six years from now no i'm not positive but i know that if i continue to do today or tomorrow the things that i'm doing today chances are i'm probably gonna be in about the same place or better but i'm not going to backslide you know and my girls one time said something to me about well if the church said this what would you say I'm like well i don't have to worry about that you know that's not my deal i don't care about what may happen i care about what's happening right now today and what i can do to fix today and I'm going to look forward to tomorrow so that I know how to plan for it, but I'm not going to focus on it. Right now, i got to keep the balance in my life where I'm at now because I, I, can't, I can't be worried about what happened in the past and what happened in the future and still focus on the here and now, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. you know. So that, that would be the second message. And then the third message is, is if there are people who are struggling and people that you think, I'm not getting near her because she's trouble, which Kay could have said, <laughs> and all of my friends could have said. When I went to her house in Idaho one time, apparently, and I don't remember this, but they told me that I sat in her daughter's bedroom window and smoked a cigarette in her house. And I don't even remember that. And I think, how could she even possibly consider inviting me to come live with her after prison 
And that was before I even got in trouble. You know what I mean? And yet here she is taking this huge risk. My aunt did the same thing. And my cousin, who's my age, said, I don't want you living with my mom. I'm afraid you're going to steal from her. And I'm like, that's valid, right? I totally get that. Be cautious, be careful, protect yourself, but don't let that stop you from helping people. Because without those angels in my life, I couldn't have done it. There's no possible way I could have done it, you know? So that's kind of the long and short of it, mostly the long of it. <laughs> so uh, do you have questions I, for me? I'm just blown away. <laughs> I'm so inspired, too. That was no, great. here's some more inspiration, though. Yeah. She paid off all of her debts. Oh, yeah. She, Early. In fact, she would call up her PO and say, I just thought of another one and add it to my list. Oh, that was the out so of the jail. they would... You know, she add. add the more money for her to have to pay off because she wanted everything taken care of. She she just wanted it all done, so she did it right. Wow. She did lots of things right, Cheryl. Yeah, it was, <laughs> I have to say that even today I'm super shocked. <laughs> super shocked that that money got paid off. But again, that came down to I had a place to live where I wasn't charged rent for an entire year. You know what I mean? You know what kind of money you can sock away to a bill if you don't have to pay rent? <laughs> It's a lot. You know, when I moved into my house, <laughs> I loved living with Dana and Elaine. <laughs> so awesome. I had two lawn chairs and a, and a blanket. And that's what I slept on. Oh, no, you had given me the little mattress. So I did, did I? have the mattress. Yeah, I had a little single mattress. And I had two lawn chairs and a blanket. And that's what I moved into my new house with. And now she lives in a gorgeous house. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's <laughs> like a miracle. Like, I'm telling you, when I say miracle, I mean... I don't mean like, oh, yeah, and then some flowers got delivered by some nice... I mean, like, we're talking, like, Moses part the Red Sea kind of miracle stuff. Nobody gets out of jail when they have 54 felony charges pending. Nobody. And yet it happened. Yeah, you know, and you I can prove it. it you you know? did it. Yeah. Well, she couldn't, she couldn't get rebaptized until her debts were paid. Oh, yeah. And she, wanted, she wanted to be baptized. So... And they let me. Like, was that pretty cool? That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that is so amazing. I know. And you know who got to baptize me? Who? My 16-year-old son. Was really? that cool or what? <laughs> yeah. So he turned 16 in December, and I was baptized in April. So oh, I, this year? No, 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 no. Oh. No, this was 10 years ago? Maybe. 2007, no, 2006? But just like yeah. four or five months later, after he turned 16. Yeah. Yeah, it was four months after he turned 16. Yep. Because his birthday was December 28th, he turned 16, and then in April I got baptized. And so why did it take me that long? Maybe it was supposed to, because I would have probably had my bishop do it, you know, but this was his deal. It was his time. It was his place, you know, and it was, it was perfect. And it, it just, I mean, miracles, Moses size. You know? We're not even going to talk about our health problems that don't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, I have to tell you that one. There's just one. So okay, there, we are going to talk about it. No, just one story, though. Just one. So I had a CAT scan done because I had some issues. And we had had to, we had had to come back. We were in Houston or Austin, Tex Austin, Texas on a business trip. And I got super sick. And so she had to wheel me through the airport in a wheelchair because I was so sick to get me home. And so we immediately go to the emergency room. And they're like, oh, yeah, you're bleeding internally. You've got these things going on, blah, 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 blah. So they take a CAT scan, and it goes across the street to my doctor. And, like, two days later, they made me do an esophagram. Remember that? Where mm -hmm. you swallow the tube so they can look to see what's bleeding. So then I go to my doctor's office, and he's got on his little laptop over on the left side of the screen, he has the pictures from the CAT scan that show these big 
bulging barrier, they call them varices, it's bulging areas in your gut and in the veins of your gut, there's these big bulging varices on that. And yet when they take, two days later, when they took the esophagram pictures, there's nothing wrong. It's completely normal. Completely normal. <laughs> like not, oh, it's a little That's better. Insane. <laughs> it's completely normal. And my doctor, who's this greatest guy in the world, go Chris. Anyways, he um, <laughs> he said, I, if I wasn't looking at this myself right now, I could tell you that this does not ever happen. He says, but I'm seeing it with my own eyes. And he goes, we know what that's from. He says, that's from a priesthood blessing and the fact that you just refuse to say no. Because <laughs> I wasn't going to, you know, it's just crazy. Like, there were so many things. And, and honestly, when I look at it and I think, why I do, I say this to this day, why me? Why does Heavenly Father love me? Why does this happen to me? Because I have done nothing but give him heartache and grief and be a total jerk talk bad about him, talk, blame him for my problems. I've sworn it. <laughs> I've sworn at my God before, you know, and yet still he just continues to bless me. He continues to bless me. Now it doesn't mean I get the answers to all my prayers because I'm still single. I'm looking for <laughs> tall, dark, and handsome. If you're out there, I'll give you my number. <laughs> Actually, you can just contact Bradley. <laughs> you can contact me and I'll, I'll set you up. <laughs> But I want to hear your stories, too. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. But, yeah, I just, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an absolutely amazing thing. And see, now, like, when I talk about it again, I get so excited about it. I'm like, yeah, this was my life, and it was so cool, and I'm going to tell everybody I'm going to write the book tonight, you know? <laughs> I've had so many people tell me, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. And I'm like, nobody's interested in that. Nobody wants they to know are. the book. And yet, at the same time, I get so excited because... It happened. And, like, the thing is I can prove 90% of it happened. Well, you know? I can I can pull up your picture on the computer for the most wanted in Utah, so I know it happened. <laughs> yeah, I do have that Channel 2 or Channel 13 video somewhere, too. Oh, it was awful. Yeah, can you believe that? Me. That's insane. That's so mean. Why would you do that? And I asked the, I asked the cop guy, my my friend, Ryan, who really was never my friend. He was always the arresting cop who just happened to know my parents and live with them for a couple of years. But, um... <laughs> On his mission. <laughs> on his mission. But he said they put Utah's most wanted out for people who are most likely to get caught. <laughs> I said, thanks, Ryan. <laughs> you know, my my aunt saw that and called my mother. My mother didn't know I was even in trouble until my aunt called and said, Cheryl's on Utah's most wanted. They said she's cooking methamphetamine. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. It was super awesome. <laughs> right? That's so funny. And I laugh, and people probably think, oh, you're so, you know, you're too cavalier about it or you don't take this seriously. I take this seriously, but I really think that if you don't laugh about it, then you're going to cry about it and then you get boogers and a red nose. So that's just not worth it. It's not. It's not worth it at all. But I just, I, yeah. Did you have questions? So <laughs> I can think of one question okay. that I have. Um, and you kind of, I feel like you answered it to, to some degree, I'm sure. Um, but I'm just curious if you were to look back on like the darkest moment or one of the darkest moments now what would you tell yourself that's a great question um you know i probably could think of about five things i would say but i don't think the me of then would listen to would have listened to any of them mm -hmm. i think i would have heard it and i, I would have either said stuff it only in different words <laughs> Or I probably would have gone, yeah, 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 and just blown it off. I don't think I would have listened. I didn't listen to anything hmm. or anyone ever because it was, 
it was all about um, making sure there was no pain. And the pain was, this is the, the weird thing, like it's not a physical pain, but emotional pain becomes physical pain. And when I yeah. left my family over that excuse of the big blow up, you know, which there's lots of details in there, but the thing that happened in October of 97, when that happened and I left my house and I didn't, I thought I should have gotten an apology for my then husband about what had happened and he never apologized and I never went home. And knowing that family is to me vital and crucial and important and I walked away from my kids, that pain was super intense, like unbearable. And that to me today is the only regret that I have. I don't regret having spent time in prison because it, I'm such a better person for it, which is a weird thing to hear. But the pain that I put my kids through, because there are still consequences. The atonement wipes out lots of stuff, but in this lifetime, it doesn't fix everything. Mm -hmm. The consequences, the stain is still there currently, right? You know, the stain of the sin. And I've scrubbed at it and scrubbed at it. It's lighter, it's lighter, it's lighter, but it's not gone. And you can still see it. And my, my kids have issues, some of them, because of it. You know, fortunately, none of them are in jail. They're not all active members of the church, which is great. I love them. I don't care, you know. I mean, I do care, but I don't care mm -hmm. because they're good, functioning human beings. They're great parents. They're they love their mother to pieces. <laughs> they do. They do. I think they do, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt in my mind, actually, about that. But but they still suffer from things. They suffer, you know, I've, I've got a daughter who suffers from feeling like, why did you choose drugs over me? And I get that. Like, I, what do you how say? Do you, how do you respond? I just tell her I'm sorry, and that's not enough. And I, mm -hmm. that's what I told my one daughter one time, as I said, you know, she said in a letter when I was in jail, my middle daughter said, um, you know, you've apologized. You said the Heavenly Father's forgiven you, and you've apologized, and you've, you're making restitution. She said, but why have you never told me you're sorry? And I wrote it back, and I said, because I don't want it to be in words. You know, I don't want to say I'm sorry. I want to show you I'm sorry. I want to show you this is not the person I am anymore. And I can't do that with words. You know, a year isn't going to be enough. And maybe 10 years won't be enough. And maybe 50 years won't be enough. But hopefully if I live my life every single day showing you that you are number one in my life, and even though I screwed up royally when you were little, you know, I'm here today and I'm, you know, if you take eight years out of their life, for some of them it's a quarter of their life, you know, for some of them it's less than that, but not by much, and some of them it's a third of their life, you know, and I, I think if I look at it that way and I go, look, all these years you have left in you, I'm going to spend making up, so that's going to be a little blip, and so that little blip, you're going to have to learn to get through it because we can't take it away and make it not there, you know, but the pain is real for them, and I, I know that, and I wish I could... That's the only thing I wish I could change about all the lessons that, that have come from this. Well, that and the, you know, I wish I could get all my felonies expunged, but that's not going to happen <laughs> in this lifetime. But it so. hasn't slowed you down. It hasn't to a degree. I mean, that's the other thing is jobs are, you know, I find that if you're pretty honest with people, there are some people you can never get the interview with, but there are other people who are willing to give you time if you're dishonest. I think honesty is super sexy. <laughs> and I don't necessarily... Are you listening? <laughs> yeah. 
especially that idiot in the restaurant, Olive Garden in South Jordan. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's why she's my BFF. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's a tough one because uh, I don't think anybody. I don't think I would have listened to me. Hmm. Now I, I can, think I can feel I could, that. Yeah. Yeah. I think if I could go back and I would listen, I would tell myself just to. Um, if I knew that for sure I would listen, I would say, obviously, don't do what you did. But I think I would just say, other people don't matter. Focus on focus on the important things, your family, your God, and serving other people. Let the religion go as far as the, the culture of it. Mm-hmm. Let that go. Because people are always going to be jerks. There are always going to be jerks, you know, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate, right? I mean, I'm not a skinny person. I don't, you probably haven't noticed that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I've been made fun of before, you know, for that. And now I think it's so funny because it's like, here I am in my 50s and now they're talking about bullying, you know, and I'm like, wait a minute, I've been bullied my whole damn dang life. <laughs> you might want to edit that. <laughs> you know? You're good. And so it's like, wait just a second here, you know, and, and yet at the same time, I think, well, that's, who cares? That's a physical thing. Like, and I struggle with it. But yet, I don't struggle with it the same way people who are suicidal are, or people who have homosexual tendencies, or people who have parents who have been in prison, or people who have children who are, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So all those struggles, and I just think, who cares? That has nothing to do with anything. It is so non-relevant. And if we could get to the point where we don't do that with people, our world would be so awesome. It would be so awesome. Like, I get really excited thinking about that. (laughs) You know? Anyways, I've talked your brains out. No, I've loved it. (laughs) I I could listen to you all day. And there's so much more. Truly there is. She doesn't tell it all. That's the eight year. I mean, how do you say take eight years worth of garbage? (laughs) You just can't. I mean, and sometimes the highlights are here and sometimes the highlights are there. And by highlights, I mean low lights. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, but it's, you know, it's good. I serve in the temple. I, I, me, okay, the felon, <laughs> the 54-time loser, right? Utah's That's most wanted. Utah's most wanted, you know? <laughs> and they let me not only have a temple recommend, but I get to serve in the temple, which is, by the way, you know, so if you're ever at the temple on Friday night in Portland, just my name's Cheryl. <laughs> Come say hi. Come and say hi. Yeah, because it's it really is. Oh, it's the sweetest blessing. It is, and I, I just I can't believe it. I I can't believe I have a job. That's the only part I ever worry about. Truly, like when I share my story, I never worry about. I do worry about what people are going to think, but I don't let it stop me. Mm-hmm. But I don't share the story oftentimes because I'm afraid for my job because I work in, in a field that um, is pretty particular about felonies, <laughs> you know? And so for me, it's I always worry about that part of it. But I also know, so part of me says that, and then the other part of me goes, you know, I was looking for a job when I found this one. And that's very almost too cavalier, but, but at the same time, it's um, I know that it's going to get taken care of, whatever it is. So, um, but yeah, it's just I have a great <laughs> job, and I make enough money to be a contributing member of society. I pay taxes. I have a driver's license with my own name and my own picture on it. That's big. (laughs) (laughs) And they let her have credit cards. And it, yeah. And my credit's good. Like, it's really good. Good. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm not bragging. I'm just simply saying <laughs> that for somebody who has been convicted of all the felony forgery, blah, 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 and the list goes on and on and on, kind of a big deal. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> you are. Okay. You're all a right. big deal. <laughs> okay, we're done. Not enough time. I can time. only take so much. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut that out. We don't have time for it. You're going to have to edit that for sure. (laughs) It's irrelevant. (laughs) Totally irrelevant, but it's true nonetheless. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. You should move back. I know. I do love Portland, though. It's so awesome. I think that's the thing, though, right? Is No matter where you are, it's awesome if you want it to be awesome, and it's crappy Mm -hmm. if you want it to be crappy. And remind me that I said that when it's February and it's on day 400 of rain. I will. Okay. I will. Oh, it's ugly. (laughs) It's a lot of rain. 